0: This episode was made in partnership with Mott McDonald. The rapid and exponential spread of the new coronavirus, COVID-19, is changing the way that we live and work. First detected in December 2019 in Wuhan City, China, Within three months, it had become a global pandemic, described as the biggest challenge since the Second World War. This podcast was recorded in the week of the 15th of March. Schools and universities were closing. Critical exams were cancelled. Social and business gatherings had ceased. All employees capable of operating from home were told to do so. Public transport services were scaled back, and the UK was on the brink of lockdown as London became a viral epicentre. Other countries such as China, France and Italy had already isolated millions of people to stop the spread of COVID-19. Philip Jansen, the chief executive of the UK's largest internet services provider, BT Openreach, was affected earlier than most people in the country, testing positive for coronavirus in early March, when the number of people with the virus was less than 2,000. Janssen self-isolated, working from home. Internet boss, coronavirus, working from home. It got people wondering if home networks could cope with the load if everyone did this. BT Openreach Chief Technology Officer Howard Watson rushed to reassure the public.
1: Right now, our network is connected to 11 million businesses, small and large, public sector uh, and also households. So we know minute by minute how the traffic patterns behave across our network.
0: And the daily peak is between 8 and 9pm.
1: At this time, the network capacity reaches about 17 terabits per second.
0: That's 17 million megabits per second.
1: That peak is significantly higher than what we see from households during the day. In fact, 10 times higher than the households during the day.
0: And even adding in traffic from business, it only adds up to around a quarter of the evening peak.
1: So because of this, I am really confident that we will be able to accommodate people working from home and their work from home traffic uh, on both our core network and our access network provided by Openreach.
0: Welcome to Engineering Matters, I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. As the world battles with a public health crisis, we're taking a look at the resilience of infrastructure here in the UK and how we make sure that when a massive disruption hits, essential services keep running. As Howard Watson from BT Openreach just explained, the network has plenty of capacity for an increase in home working and business traffic. But he also says that firms could now find that their own servers and connections into those, such as virtual private networks, need upgrading. VPN technology was developed to allow remote users and branch officers to access corporate applications and resources. And across the world, VPN use has been accelerating in tandem with the spread of coronavirus. VPNs are pivotal in enabling home working. According to data from US VPN provider Atlas VPN, use of its networks has exploded across the world in proportion to the number of coronavirus cases. The highest growth has been in Italy, which saw a 112% rise during the second week in March, followed by 53% in the US. This could see businesses purchasing greater contracted capacity from service providers like BT OpenReach or installing bigger Ethernet cables to physically increase capacity. Although there may be some frustration over upload and download speeds, which are much lower with VPNs than on local networks, and I am speaking from experience here. Like many other people in the UK, I'm working from home, and our audio files are pretty large. BT OpenReach is confident that the fundamental service of internet provision is secure. But is it really? Infrastructure is massively interconnected and interdependent. It's sometimes described as a system of systems. When something goes wrong, a local problem can escalate into a much bigger systemic problem. And to explore this, we needed to talk to engineers and infrastructure resilience experts. So as well as calling the major utility and service providers in the UK, we approached the UK's largest infrastructure consultant, Mock MacDonald. This is David Viner, who you might recognise from episode 17, acting on climate change. He's global head of climate resilience and a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
2: Across the UK, we have in place an infrastructure system that has been built up over many centuries now. Some of the original infrastructure designs, particularly during the great age of Victorian engineering, is still operating, still in place, still working, still functioning and providing the services it was meant to do. What we've done since is layer upon layer of new infrastructure and systems as well to help organise and control that infrastructure to make sure it runs efficiently and effectively. So we know that This interconnectivity helps make things function but when there's stresses and there's a risk associated maybe due to a new hazard that these systems are likely to be more exposed to
0: that risk. So in the case of internet services, home connectivity only works if we have power. To that end, National Grid, which is responsible for the High Voltage Transmission Network, assures us that the system is resilient and prepared for reduction in labour force during the current pandemic. They told us that all of their control rooms are secure sites with a range of resilience and security measures in place, including alternative operational black facilities and restricting visitor access. They've also trained their engineers across multiple roles and this is critical the impact of labour disruption is perhaps the most difficult challenge to address in the event of the current coronavirus crisis and other major incidents.
2: It is essential that within the infrastructure resilience planning, people are at the heart of that decision-making, you know, can people get to work to run and operate the infrastructure or run and operate the services that are required? If you don't have the people there, we know things fall over pretty quickly.
0: David says that planning for resilience, whether that's in the event of a climate-related disaster or a pandemic, requires a four-step approach. First is being aware of potential risks and hazards.
2: Being aware of the exposure and vulnerability of your asset.
0: Being objective.
2: They have to use the best available evidence. It's no good people saying, I've got a gut feeling, I've got some idea that this may happen, or this is what we've done in the past. It needs hard, robust evidence for decision-making
0: and getting evidence from a diverse array of sources.
2: You're looking at a really diverse range of evidence to base your decision making on. And then finally, and this is where it really comes down to supply chains, especially when operating infrastructure and assets, is flexible. Make sure that awareness, objectiveness, and diverse are being used to make sure that the responses that can be put in place are flexible so that there's nothing rigid in the supply chain.
0: Resilience is mainly associated with some kind of physical shock, a flood, a collapse or exceptional snowfall, but some events are more difficult to plan for than others. Right now, the UK's transport sector, from airports to railways, is currently struggling with a sudden collapse of demand. And a lack of income when the asset base has a fixed operating cost means things can unravel pretty quickly. The Airport Operators Group, which is a trade association representing airport-related businesses across the UK, is already warning that airports will close within weeks without government support and is calling for emergency financing, suspension of business rates, deferral of other taxes and support for meeting the cost of paying employees. But from an infrastructure perspective, Sean Hawken, who's Head of Strategic Asset Management at Mock MacDonald and has 25 years' experience in airports, says physical assets are doing well and have learned important lessons from previous disasters.
1: In 2010, we had a pretty unusual snow event at Heathrow in terms of the amount of snow, but also the way that the, the freezing and thawing happened, which led to pretty significant operational disruption.
0: It was the coldest December in over 100 years. On the 18th, there was heavy snowfall that hadn't been anticipated by Heathrow and some other major airports. Aeroplane stands couldn't be cleared of snow fast enough, and that forced the cancellation of over 4,000 flights on one of the busiest weekends of the year. At the same time, communications between the airport, airlines and passengers broke down. Train and underground services to Heathrow were unaffected by the snow, so passengers just kept on arriving, eager to jet off for the Christmas holidays it was a steep learning curve in resilience planning for Heathrow.
1: Stakeholders and customers weren't prepared to put up with the airport being closed for that amount of snow. Um, So that was about planning and having the right equipment to clear the snow. But also there was a lot lot of learnings around situational awareness during the event and being able to accurately understand when assets were available and what their status was.
0: Aviation is not the only industry to learn from disasters. This is global lead for water Judy Anderson, who before joining Mott McDonald spent 16 years working in operations and asset management at Yorkshire Water.
3: If you remember the water shortages that happened in the late 90s in Yorkshire, which was shortly after privatisation and the company went through a really bad time, but came out of that much stronger, kind of saying... That kind of thing must never happen again and, and really got into asset management and resilience planning and, and risk and and really understanding what was what was going on and i think it was really at the forefront of
0: all of that stuff in the early 2000s and i think it has set them up really well so during the current crisis and with potential labor force disruption judy says that water companies are well prepared to keep services running the drive for efficiency post-privatisation with tight regulation has seen water companies invest in automation and the latest technologies to keep water flowing, maintain resilient supplies and ensure that wastewater is collected.
3: I expect that probably quite a lot of people might imagine that there are people, you know, operators and maintenance technicians perhaps on site for a lot of the time keeping these things operational. But, but the reality is that treatment plants are, are pretty reliable, it's very normal that they just have periodic visits from uh, operations, maintenance teams, rather than a kind of permanent presence. And, and the, anything that's critical these days will have telemetry on it, it'll be remotely monitored at a central control room, there'll be automated systems, so some things can be controlled remotely, Sometimes you might need to send out field um, staff if, if there are issues, but, but that can be seen from the central control room. So the reliance on having lots of people, you know, on the site, you know, we've moved away from those days where we had an awful lot of people with these. It's, it's much more of a technology world, I guess, these days.
0: But the link between different infrastructure services means that for these automated systems to work, you need power.
3: There is a real link between power and water. Um, you hear about the, the, the um, energy water nexus because, um, you know, the, the more water that we need, the more power that, the, that we need. And uh, if the power supply is not available, then that clearly has an impact on, on our ability to, to treat water. So there is an absolute linkage between the two, but that is something that companies plan for power resilience is is something that companies look at as part of their long-term planning processes. The critical supplies, for instance, for water will typically also have generators, which will mean that if the power's out, that they're able to at least run
0: the most important parts of the plant to continue to supply water. In the future, Judy says that new technologies are helping water companies explore a greater range of scenarios and understand the impact of systems on other systems in real time. For example, weather systems on the existing water network. All of this adds up to greater resilience.
3: Back in the early 2000s, we had what, in my experience in the water industry, was Uh, very, very unusually large-scale flooding that went on for a very prolonged period. And what that meant to us was that lots of customers were flooded. Lots of our own employees were unable to get around and about to works and, and do their sort of normal maintenance. And we're dealing with flooding in their own properties, for instance. And I was working on the front line at that point, and we had in the same way as companies do now, had our incident control rooms and we had the local authorities and the regulators and we had the police and fire brigade and what have you all together. And and we tried so far as we could to be proactive about what we were doing and and we were sort of trying to predict what was going to happen next. But literally we were doing it on a hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute
0: basis. And based on what people were telling us, The system was reliant on reactive information from customers who were reporting the situation to the water company and emergency services after the flooding had hit, and the water company then responded. But new technologies are changing that.
3: And if I contrast that to a company uh, that we've been working with in New Zealand, Auckland Water, and they have sensors on their network, and they've linked um, weather forecasting data with network models and customer models and all of that's in real time. So in their control room, in their incident management processes, they are very much more able to predict where the floods might happen
0: much earlier than than we were able to do uh, 20 years ago. And that's given Auckland Water the ability to respond before the weather system hits, getting field staff out to employ mitigation measures ahead of time. And start emptying
3: uh, detention tanks in the network, maximising capacity, putting out sandbags in the right places. And and I think those are the sorts of things that make a real difference
0: to customers. And I think we'll see lots more of that in future. This layering of real-time information across a multitude of systems that can then be virtually replicated and scenarios run to predict the impact of a variety of situations is something that infrastructure is only just starting to harness. Mark Enzer is the Chief Technical Officer at Mock McDonald and also Chair of the Centre for Digital Built Britain, which is running the programme to create a network of digital twins across sectors and industries that will ultimately become part of a national digital twin. You can learn more about that in episode 31. Mark explains that a digital twin represents a physical asset or system. Some, built around long-term data about the condition of an asset and capital investment, are used for strategic planning and predictive decision-making. Others use real-time data to tune efficiency or respond to events as they unfold. Twins are really useful for understanding big, complex systems.
4: So when, when we look at infrastructure and you see the, the connections, and, and increasing connections actually, between transport and energy, for example, but also between telecoms and energy and between energy and water and you know they're all interconnected. So what I think we're describing there is a a system of systems and then we can imagine that connected digital twins uh, help to to be that tool set that you need uh, to understand a system of systems and then to make sense of it and then uh, ultimately to um, make better decisions and, and kind of feed back into the system with sensible interventions
0: interventions that can be planned before disaster strike because the worst case scenarios can be modelled and the domino effects appreciated ahead of time instead of reactively.
4: The key to cyber physical infrastructure improving resilience uh, is that it helps us to make better decisions, better resilience decisions. Uh, I mean it should be that throughout the life of assets and throughout all the various different processes in in the infrastructure systems, uh, we can be making better decisions.
0: The infrastructure industry has been relatively slow starting this digital transition, but it is happening. The current coronavirus pandemic has created a surge of investment in tools that support remote working. Some are already predicting that there'll be wider effects, that the disruption to working patterns and processes and the new reliance on digital technologies will push us faster and further into the fourth industrial revolution, the digitalisation of everything.
4: So I, I kind of agree that um, COVID 19 could accelerate things, but, but I, I feel that where you can almost feel that acceleration happening already is in people relying on digital solutions, even as we're doing for this uh, this interview just now. And becoming more comfortable to be remote, to be picking up um, all sorts of information from somewhere completely separate uh, and being able to work collaboratively without having to be face-to-face. And so I, I think that uh, as we move into using um, much more of these remote solutions because we because we have to because we're being forced into it uh, we're going to become much more comfortable with it
0: and that cultural and behavioral change is crucial for adoption of new technologies that can enable us to gain a better understanding of infrastructure and the interdependencies of systems ahead of disasters
4: while the technical solutions are just technical we can do that the cultural solution was probably going to be more difficult Uh, and so you can kind of see that we might be edged towards that through this horrible thing that's been forced on us,
0: Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced by Bernadette Ballantyne and Ross McPherson, edited by John Young and Andrew Melius. Executive Disaster Manager is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Mark MacDonald. You can find us on all podcast apps and at our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. Follow us on Twitter at engineermatters or share us on LinkedIn.